This episode of The Moment is sponsored by Open Account, a podcast series created by Suchin Pak and Umku Bank. Open Account explores through honest and sometimes comical interviews our uncomfortable silence around money. Open Account is available now on iTunes. And by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash moment. Hey, this isn't an advertisement, and I'm about to do an intro to Salman. I just want to say, if you like this conversation, and I loved it, it's one of my very favorite ones I've ever had with a microphone or without a microphone, please spread the word about the show. Nothing makes me happier than knowing people dig it. So let me know about it on Twitter. Please review and rate on iTunes. And more importantly than anything, if you like this show, please share it with your friends. Thanks. Okay, now you can hear my introduction to Salman. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. In a couple minutes, Salman Rushdie's going to be here. He's our guest today. We throw around the word genius all the time in our society, and I probably do it on the show. We're all prone to hyperbole. Salman Rushdie's genius. You know, the author of books like Satanic Verses, Midnight's Children, his new book, Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Days. Also, the memoir, Joseph Anton. Uh, I love doing this show. No matter what else is going on in my life, no matter how busy I get making the TV series I'm working on, this show is uh, really central. And people ask me, why am I doing it? Why do I keep doing it? And, and the answer is so that I can feel the way that I feel right now. I mean, part of the answer is, I, I, and it's true, I love the reaction to the show. I love the conversation I get to have with the audience after. But the, the, the really truest answer I can give is the way I feel right now uh, as Salman's about to walk in here. And I know Salman. We've spent some time together, and I like him as a, a great deal. But, you know, in social settings, you cannot ask all the questions you want to ask without the risk of embarrassing yourself, the other person, and everyone else at the table. But here, with the microphones, I can ask, and I can ask them of a master. I'm going to try to live up to it. I'm nervous and excited and I don't get nervous uh, ever before talking to people. So it's a fun feeling. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Give me feedback. Let me know how you feel about the whole thing. And we'll get going soon. Salman Rushdie walking in. Okay, Salman Rushdie is here. Salman, thanks for coming. Hello. Hi. Nice to be with you. You seem to be doing all right, though. You um, woke woke up early this morning. Yes, I had to. I had to do the Dawn Patrol, <laughs> the CBS morning show. Because yeah, and uh, I, you're someone who's more comfortable. Even though you write during the day, you're more comfortable in, as the day goes on in the evening. Yeah, hours. I mean, I don't. I'm not an early morning guy. You know, I mean, I do like an office job. You know, I do like a kind of nine to five. But I do work at night before I go to sleep. I always like to read what I wrote that day, and partly to see if it needs any little tinkering and partly to keep it in my head for the next morning. Ah, that's fascinating. Uh, various people say different. Mailer would try really hard not to read it over the same day. Yeah, But because of the way I know the way you spend many of your evenings, so then when you're reading it over, sometimes it's after perhaps a glass of wine. Yeah, but so... No, I'm at, so does that help you to be a little kinder to yourself? No, it doesn't hurt. I mean, somehow, I don't know, somehow there's a the piece of my head that's thinking about the book is totally unaffected by the wine. I have the Hitchens trick, you know, because, I mean, Christopher used to, I mean, it wasn't wine, you know, but Christopher would drink considerable amounts of stuff, and then he would sit down at, like, 1 a.m. and write a 3,000-word piece for the New York Review of Books, and it would be published without any changes. I mean, it was, like, perfect. And and you can work a, as effectively, because uh, Joyce Carol Oates, I mean, not Joyce Carol Oates, um, Didion talks about having that, Didion talks about having a glass of wine when she rereads, because no. it allows her to be... A little kind, oh, kinder to herself. Maybe that's no. I mean, I'm quite unkind to myself in rereading. You know, uh, I can't drink at all when I'm writing. I can't drink like a sip of wine. If I have a glass of wine at lunch, the day is gone. You know, um, but at night, I no. I really want. I want to see what's wrong. You know, when the reason for rereading it is to see what's wrong, not to say how tell yourself how cool you are. Yeah, I've read an interview where you say you want, that's when you give it to your readers. You try to give it to readers who... who uh, you want to have people who are not scared of you, you know, and are not going to flatter you. You want people who are going to say, look, I got bored here, 
or I got confused over there, or I wanted more about this person or this event, or I wanted less about this person. You know, you want people who tell you that stuff. Yeah, because mm. your 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 standard is is internally is so high. Yeah, well, you know, the book is going to stay published for a really long time. You know, so the the time to fix it is before that. Um, so I can't show people work in progress. You know, I mean, I, that, because it's I feel that it's so fragile. Yeah, I read that state thing yeah. you said where uh, where if someone if you write a scene you think is funny and they don't laugh, it could ruin. I, I you said it in yeah. a, a mellow way, but I can imagine it ruins a week for you. Yes, it kind of you know it's a tragedy. <laughs> no, it is right. <laughs> yeah. It can call the whole thing into question. It can. So I don't do that. So what I try and do is hug it to myself. Until I have reached a place where I know that I'm not making it any better. That uh, takes discipline, doesn't it? Yeah. To not a, share it. To not share it in the, the in the moment of wild enthusiasm, but to share it in the moment of clear-eyed focus. In it. Yeah, it takes discipline, and it takes you get used to it. You know, I mean, that's. A, but the other thing is that not showing people the stuff you're writing that you're dying to show people is the thing that makes you finish it. You know, it, it drives you forward to finish it. Yeah, it's a way to not defeat yourself. Yeah, I mean, there was a point, once I did it, made the mistake, when I was writing The Moor's Last Side uh, in the mid-90s, I'd written like the 100 pages, and I thought they, I liked them, and I just wanted somebody to tell me so. And so I showed it to uh, a couple of people, and they really loved them and said so, and I couldn't write for three months. I was just stopped. And I thought, oh... You should learn from this. Don't do this. And talking it out, as we're talking about it too? Or yeah. can you talk about no, it? No, no, I can't. When I'm writing it, no. My, my view is you shut your mouth and then it comes out through your fingers. Yeah, I had a few dinners with you while you were writing this book. Yeah. And all you would say is that the work went well yeah. on a given day. Yeah. But nothing, really no, nothing more. Nothing. I would, it's just, it's the only thing that I've learned from experience is do not talk about work in progress. Well, and I do believe what you said about keeping a book the book in your head in a, spa, a part of your head separate because yeah. I I did note because I was looking there are times in your social like when you're out doing your stuff it does seem that you reserve at times <laughs> a part of yourself you're happy for the chit chat to happen <laughs> at a slight remove and that it takes uh, it actually takes something to pull you present well you know when I'm really and I mean that's when we were hanging out when, when I'm really in the throes of writing the book 95% of me is not there. <laughs> I mean, there's a sort of 5% of me that eats and talks that is there, but my head is really somewhere else. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll admit to, uh, you know, noticing and, uh, you know, my wife's a writer too, I was noticing and feeling like when I could actually see you snap, like actually snap folk alert, yeah. I, it felt like a real victory. <laughs> you know, it, it felt like, ah, oh, he, he noticed that was, uh, you know, because no, I could tell you were in the ether. It's terrible hanging out with writers when they're writing. You know, I mean, you know, because you, you live with one, but it's a... Uh, it's it's a hard thing to accommodate that somebody's interiority is so demanding that they don't have very much left to be exterior with. Yeah, no, you know? uh, clearly, and it's it's um, no, it's understandable. That's why I think that's why Amy and for us, like mm. marrying another mm. writer helped. You seem to go another way with it that you don't. I did. I did once marry a yes. writer. It was a catastrophe. No, I know you wrote <laughs> Joseph Anton. You <laughs> talk about it in that book yeah. quite a bit. No, it was really not good. Those accommodate because those accommodations, and there's a way to read the new book as discussing some of those accommodations in mm. a way that one makes for genius or for the artist or for the spirit. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, certainly in the beginning, the philosopher Ibn Rushd with his with his supernatural girlfriend. He's quite the selfish bastard, you know. I mean, he's really not paying that much attention to her. He's uh, paying a lot of attention to himself and expecting her to do the same. But it seems throughout that this question of the the price of uh, the only kind of magic that you seem to recognize, and I do too, which is the art, mm. beauty, that it's kind of worth whatever the price. Well, the, and you know, and the price is often high. You know, I mean, that's uh, it, it's. Uh, I'm not even talking about you know. Uh, writers who've been persecuted. I'm just saying... I'm, just saying I'm that, not either. No, I'm just saying that the, it is the hardest thing I've ever found to do. You know, I mean, it is just... It's, it's harder than chess. It's harder than anything. It's harder than computer science. And it keeps you humble. 
you know, because you have you're facing your own inadequacy every day. You know, you sit down, the best book you ever write is the book you have in your head the day before you start writing. <laughs> and, and, yeah, of course, And yes. then you face the truth of your own... Well, the Kierkegaard quote, right, about, about the characters defying, you know, as the second you start, this mm -hmm. idea, this feeling mm -hmm. dissipates every minute. Yes, every minute. And just, you know, just trying to, I mean, you know, there's a story about Flaubert coming downstairs from his office and saying he had a great day because he wrote a sentence. <laughs> uh, I mean, Flaubert was a one-sentence-a-day kind of guy. My guest today is Salman Rushdie. Wow, I still can't believe, Salman, you're on the show. His new book, Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights, is on sale now. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of The Moment is sponsored by Open Account. Money is one of those last great taboos, something we all need but rarely dare to discuss until now. Open Account, a series of interviews created by Suchin Pak and Umka Bank, explores our collective uncomfortable silence around money. Honest, emotional, and sometimes comical. Open Account goes deep into the most rewarding, challenging, and paradoxical aspects of the number one leading stressor in America, money. Open Account is now available on iTunes. You know, in, in, in reading it and in thinking about the other books as well, it seems to me that you despise cowardice. You despise, like, willful innocence in the face of massive evidence of horrors of the world. But you also, it seems, can't stand willful cynicism in the face mm -hmm. of evidence of beauty. You know, in the beginning of the book, you reference, in the first 50 pages, you reference Candide and then some nincompoot quoting Thorsten Veblen, who, you know, uh, was a very a, a cynical, mm -hmm. uh, and you have no sympathy for either side of that, no. uh, it, it seems. Because it seems like you wish in your work, and even in the nonfiction, for the Edenic innocence and beauty, like that you wish against logic for magic to be real. Yes. So where does that leave you? Well, it leaves you having a lot of your wishes unfulfilled. <laughs> it's, but one of the things I thought about in this book, you see, is I thought that what let's loosely call magic, which includes imagination and creativity and, you know, all those things, is the only weapon we've got against the horror of the world, you know. And, and if you turn on the news, it's very easy to be depressed by the world. And I thought, how do you respond to that? Because I, mean, I do think, I do like to think that the books, all my books are kind of responses, responses to the actual world, no matter how fabulated they are, you know. Well, but, you're this this rare thing, right? You're a rationalist who's a fabulous. I know this is a, this is a, I I'm able to see that this is a contradiction, <laughs> and uh, um, and I mean somebody who is as convinced of the superiority of reason as I am, and and as deeply godless as I am, should not be writing fairy tales. And yet that's all that shows up. But one of the things I like, you see, about this is when I was doing the reading about the jinn, about the genies who are sort of in this book a lot, the jinn are actually a kind of, although they occur a lot in Islamic culture, they're actually pre-Islamic. They're older creatures. You know? And the interesting thing about when I, when I was doing the reading is that enormous, quite a few of the jinn that I came across had no belief in God. You know? I mean, they, they were as skeptical about God as me. Well, the idea that the supernatural people don't even know, I mean, as yeah. the generations go on, they yeah. don't even know that they are that. Exactly. I mean, maybe we don't know that which, we are that. I mean, obviously, I mean, which ties into the Lamed Vav, too, and yes. all the, I mean, um, throughout mythology, mm -hmm. right? This idea. Yeah. So I thought, okay, if I'm allowed to have supernatural beings without having to concede the existence of angels and gods, then that's a good place to be. That's where I want to be. So I've got supernatural beings, but the existence of fairyland, to put it like this, doesn't prove the existence of paradise. But often your villains yeah. want to, I mean, I think of Midnight's Children too, want to kill creativity, Yeah, want to kill original thought, want mm -hmm. to kill passion, want mm -hmm. to kill all this stuff that you celebrate. Yeah. And it's not, it's reductive to say that, well, that's only about Islam. It's not. No, it's not. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why I thought that this particular form this uh, this kind of fairy tale of New York thing was good because it got away from the literal aspect of you know what is going on in the world 
And I wanted to go a little bit under that. And I wanted to say, look, these oppositions between reason and unreason, between tolerance and intolerance, between logic and illogic, you know, these are eternal. It's not, I mean, there's, there's a manifestation of it now, which is particularly ugly, but this is not the first time. This is an and it's not only are they eternal conflicts, but they're not only external conflicts, they're also internal conflicts. You know, we all have that argument inside ourselves. Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, yeah. how uh, you know, people who follow you on social media know that when a good review lands, mm. somehow it still matters to you. Yeah. When, when, when one would read your work, one knows that you understand that that's beyond insignificant. Yes. So what, why, where is that tension live in you and why? Oh, no, I'll tell you exactly why it is. It's because I want the book to have its shot. You know, I want the book to... You're Salman fucking Rushdie, which should I be know. on your business card, by the way. Salman but, fucking Rushdie. But, but F is a middle initial. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but, so, but, what, uh, what, so why, why do you think the book won't get a shot? No, or why do you read them? Why, do you, why would you empower these uh, dream killers at all? No, no, I don't, they don't get much... I mean, they don't have much impact on me, but I just want the book to be fairly described to the world, you know, so that people can then choose whether they pick it up or not. But I don't want... To, the problem with a trashing review in the age of the internet is that that's what people love, and that's what gets multiplied and goes viral. So you could have 99 terrific reviews and one hatchet job, and it's the hatchet job that goes viral. And then people say to you, oh, your, your book didn't go down very well. In the short, but but that's in the only short term. the short. That's the, the short shortest term. of the short. No, no, but term. then you know, when you're stuck in the middle of a book launch, you're thinking about the book launch. You know, you're thinking about trying to get the book off the ground. You know, and into people's hands. Okay, this leads to a big question mm. I have, which is because I know that it's not only for your own personal success. You've had all the personal success somebody could have. Mm. Mm. Why does fiction matter? Like why, and in this age, in a, like in a world gone mad, mm. why does it matter to you to get the book? Because I to get the book in people's hands so much. Well, because I think that the telling and receiving of stories is one of the most fundamental human needs. You know, and we are the we're the only creature on the earth that does this. You know, I mean, I've used the term before, but you know, we are the storytelling animal. You know, uh, one of the one of the features of being a human being that is unique to human beings is the telling and receiving of stories. And and the need for it begins incredibly early that, you know, once a newborn child, once a child feels safe and loved and fed and with a roof over their head, you know, the next thing they want is a story. Tell me a story is one of the first things a child says. And. That need is, and sometimes those are true stories. I mean, those can be like family stories or, um, or they can be made up stories. But the need to have, to shape the world, to give the world form and meaning through the telling of stories is a thing that we do, you know, and we're actually very good at it. I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not talking about professional writers. I'm talking about all of us, you know, everybody tell stories. You tell your children stories. You receive stories. I mean, in a way, I think we live in a series of, of concentric rings of story that, you know, you have personal stories, then you have the story of the family, and then a story of the community, and then a stories of the town that you live in, and then the national stories, you know. Well, that speaks to a primal need for mm. the receiving of stories. Yeah. But there are plenty of stories out there in the world. Yeah, plenty. And you're capable of writing um, nonfiction. Mm in a way that reads like a story, just as compelling. And, and, and one could make the argument, you know, so many people when they get to 30, yeah. they decide, I don't, and I, you know, I obviously love fiction. Mm. Uh, they get to a point where they go, they're, oh, you've heard, I mean, you've heard men mostly yes. say, um, yeah. oh, I, I'm too busy to read fiction. I yes. need to read, um, uh, listen, there's a new book, uh, Good is Not Great. Uh, yeah, I have yeah. to, you know, how am I going to yeah. run my, so yeah. what, what well, is the utility in yeah. a world like this of mm. fiction? Well, this is, I mean, when I wrote Harun in the Sea of Stories, yeah, it's, your, the, it's the question that Harun asks his father, what's the use of stories that aren't even true? Well, I, I view you that know? book as like an incantation, a way to keep yourself present, you know, present yeah. your son's life. Well, yeah. I, I understand all that. So you asked the question. Yeah. Well, I don't think the answer is this, that if you grew up, as I did, surrounded by these magic tales, you know, surrounded by the, the not, yes, the Arabian Nights, but the many other compendiums in India, you know, the animal fables of the Panchtantra, the, the kind of heroic warrior stories of the Hamza Nama, the, and actually in Kashmir, there's this compendium of stories that's actually bigger than the Arabian Nights, uh, which is called the Ocean of the Streams of Story. 
and has amazing tales. Which I've never read. No, but I mean, it's literally longer than the Arabian Nights. So it's a colossal 10-volume thing. Anyway, you grow up with that. One of the first things that it shows you is the value of stories that aren't true because they're another way of telling the truth. Not that they're... I don't think that fiction that is escapist has any interest to me at all. You know, uh, so the purpose is always the truth. The purpose is always to say something about human nature, about the way we are together, about how we are in the world, you know. From the beginning. Yeah. From the beginning, what made you think you could anoint yourself someone who saw that and it was worthy to share? I didn't, I couldn't anoint myself. I was just, I, it was what I always wanted to well, do. I'm thinking of Geronimo, who's, yeah. who finds himself. Yeah. Uh, his feet won't touch the ground, and yeah. he has to do a bunch of stuff to prove to himself that he's in fact special. And I'm yes. thinking of, and he's this, you know, a stand-in for someone, the spirit, the artist, the whole thing. It is hard sometimes to recognize that is indeed what you are. Yeah. Well, I was. So, what was the know, process of recognition? Well, for me, I, you know, I always. It's the only thing I ever wanted to do to be a writer, except that I did have a. When I was at college, I had a brief flirtation with the idea of being an actor. Uh, which I think it's sort of mercifully, I thought better of that and the world was spared by my thespian career. <laughs> um, I would like to see it, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but wanting to be a writer and being a writer are really different things, you know, and and I didn't have an easy time of it to start. You know? No, I know you. You know, and I mean, a lot of the people of my generation and living in London as writers did actually have great starts. You know, people like like Ian McEwan and Martin Amis and Julian Barnes, Julian Barnes and Kazuo Ishiguro. These were, they were like their first short stories, you know. They were Zoom. They were off, you know. And I felt like I was stranded on the starting line with all these people charging ahead. I was the tortoise. You know. Some of whom are your close yeah, friends. Yeah, now. yeah. But but you know, I was the tortoise, and they were the hares. You know, so, and I think for me, what it was, the thing that stopped me for a long time, or made me do stuff that really wasn't good. You know, which there was plenty of, uh, was that I didn't, I didn't sufficiently know myself. You know, and I th- I think that the before you can write something good. You have to know where it's coming from and who it's coming from. You have to know yourself really, I think, quite well. To find the truth, you mean you need to understand the prism through which you're looking at it. Yeah, and I think it's also the fact that I was a migrant. So I was, I was, you know, I was sort of a displaced person. I was trying to find my feet in a place which is not the place I was born and raised. And that creates identity. A place with its own rituals and, and yeah. uh, cruel place sometimes. Yeah. I mean, the, a boy, the school that you the first schools went to. And, and, but, but even just living in London instead of, you know, India. And I really had to find out who I was in this world, you know. And what happened is I wrote a first novel, which actually was a kind of fantasy of this kind, like this novel in a way. So this novel in a way is a circling right back to the very beginning. But that wasn't a very good one. Well, and you believed the critics when they said it wasn't a good one? No, I was shocked and very, you know, thrown off balance by the response to the book. And then after a while, when I kind of tried to regain my balance, I thought, okay, now, never mind them. Why do you think there's something wrong with this book? You know, and uh, and I came to feel that what was wrong with it is was actually that it was so fantasticated that it had no roots in anything that I could recognize as real life. You know, and so I thought, okay, let me just get closer to the roots. You know, and and actually, Midnight's Children came out of that that thought process. So in many ways, the the bad reception of that first novel allowed me to do the kind of creative rethinking that led me to write a better novel. Because Do you think part of it is that even when things were difficult for you, you were recognized as being a highly intelligent person, that you thought it was a different type of work that was required to produce something of value in the beginning? I, don't, I just think I was floundering. You know, I mean, yeah. actually, when I, when I read that first novel, Grimus, there are little passages which like spark into the spark, life. Of course, the spark of, of yeah. what was buried in, in yeah. there, yeah. And I think, oh, that's good. And then there's like 15 pages of crap. <laughs> um, in particular, awful sex stuff, awful. Um, and there are bits of that book which I want to hide behind the furniture, you know, and other bits where I think, oh, I see. And, and so it, it reads to me like somebody who hasn't found his voice you know, who's the, the the connection isn't solid. You know, it's it's just fitful. What, what do you think it is in your, in your in your makeup that allowed you to then rigorously apply sort of a dispassionate 
lens. I and so that you were able to then say, okay, I have to do this. I'm going to now look and, and act. Because it seems like many people, upon getting that kind of reaction, hmm. would either say, fuck you, hmm. I'm just going to keep at it and write the same book over and over. Yeah. Or would, would look as you did, take a job in advertising, but then never write Midnight's Children. Yeah, no, I mean, I just thought, I'm not going to give up after one shot. You know, I mean, that I would. I thought if I grow old and think of myself as having done that, I would be really disappointed in myself. You know, that, to to be just to say, oh, that didn't go well, so now I'll just do something else. More of my interview with the great Salman Rushdie after this short break. This episode of the moment is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy mobile payments. Maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub. Then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped them become what they are today? Braintree makes mobile payments so fast, easy, and seamless. It's almost magical. Add it to your app with just a few lines of code, and you're instantly ready to accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, PayPal, Venmo, credit cards, even Bitcoin. And if some other way to pay comes along, we'll support that too. Braintree's fast payouts and continuous support means you'll always be ready, whether you're earning your first dollar or your billionth. To check it out for yourself, visit braintreepayments.com slash moment. That's braintreepayments.com slash moment. How would you start to, and how do you start to think about theme and idea? Because you said if the, that, that you're not interested in escapist fiction. Mm-hmm. You've also said that you don't know where your books are going when you start them sometimes. So then what, what is it that you're holding on to well, at the beginning? It's, often it's a jigsaw puzzle with missing pieces. Story-wise, but what yeah, about... Thematically? Uh, uh, well, yeah, you know, what about what you're actually um, um, recognizing about the well, world? Well, you know, again, it's what I think of is this, that I think there's a kind of, there's private life and there's public life, you know. And what the world we now live in is one in which our private lives are constantly intruded upon by public life. You know? so, so you can't write, I think, novels in the way that Jane Austen did, which were purely about private life, where the public sphere was just barely there, you know, yes. because she didn't need it. No, yeah, I've read that comment you say yeah. about how she would just have the army in there so you could... Uh, so they look cute in uniforms. Right, but I mean, know. how do you arrive at... Well, I'm looking for intersection points. That's the thing. I'm looking for, po- for interesting places where the public life of place or our time intersects with the private lives of people that I... W- sort of beginning to want to write about, you know. And then I ask myself, what happens? What happens when those people run into that stuff, you know? And then you think, and, how do I represent it? Yeah, and then I, th- then I try, yeah. So, for instance, here, you know, I had this idea of the times we live in, a kind of general bewilderment and a sense that the world has changed so fast out of all recognition and I'm not just talking politically. I mean, you know, technology too, you know. Um, I mean, the information revolution, you know, as well. Suddenly, it seems like every day the world is metamorphosing and, and, and it's doing so at a probably higher speed than it ever has. And I think certainly I feel and I think many people feel that the, the strangeness of, of things is such that it's, it's as if the familiar rules, the kind of world we thought we lived in, that those rules don't apply anymore and which we're not exactly sure what the new rules are or how it's going to work out. And so I thought I wanted to find a way of exploring that feeling of many people feeling a feeling in a way kind of alienated from well, their time. Yes, and yeah. the alienation, which yeah. is a theme, I mean, alienation, which is a theme in almost all of your hmm. work, in many of your uh, essays as well, hmm. and I think represented so beautifully in the book by the way you talk about Bombay being gone, yes. replaced by Mumbai. Yes. I think this, this problem can, of you can't go home again. Can, yes, can, yeah. I was going to, so per, I mean, uh, we've all lost our Bombay, yes. right? And are we yes. losing it every minute? Yes, I think so. Because the problem is not just that we're not there, it's that it's not there anymore. And we can, but what's our, what, I, I know it's all primal stuff, but what, how do you, Separate from Hitch, like I think about Hitch, and I was talking mm. to Penn about this this morning. I emailed him and I, I said, you know, I, I said, Salman, uh, it seems, in the work, actually yearns for there to be magic, knows there isn't, mm-hmm. wishes there were. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I, that's when, you know, I went to 
the show, the Penn and Teller's show. And, you know, what happens in magic shows is that the audience is constantly trying to work it out. They try to say, oh, well, he does it like that. This is what happens. And they're all wrong. But, oh, yes, all, but, but, yes. but they want to know how what the trick is. I don't want to know what the trick is. Yeah, because you're relating to the thing Penn says at the end of the show, yeah. which is the wrong, wrong question is how. The right question is why. Yeah. But he would say, Penn said this morning, he said, you know, but but Hitch and, and he believe, I think in Hitch's essay, which I know you know, yeah. that to want that, even the yearning for it, uh, they're actually to be something else. Mm. Uh, strip some of the joy away from the now. It can do, and then, but then you see that's I think where art comes in. Yes, and I think the the experience we have of let's call it magic, you know, is I mean, well, for example, the experience of listening to great music, you know, uh, the uh, experience of hearing a, an extraordinary poem being read aloud by somebody who knows how to read a poem aloud, you know, the experience of standing in front of a work of art. A canvas that is blows your mind. You know, uh, I mean, art can do this to us. It it allows us transcendence. You know, and yes. for a moment. You know, and then there are things in ordinary life that do that. I mean, I think probably the most magical moments I can recall are the births of my sons. You know, and that moment of watching a life come into the world. I mean, I remember when my first son was born that I realized at some point that I was sobbing. You know, yeah. and I hadn't even known that I was. You know, I mean, like my face was covered in liquid, <laughs> yes, um, just of joy. You know, but I was completely unaware of it because I was so transported, you know, by the extraordinary thing that was happening in front of me. So I think, you know, this is this is, if you like, ordinary magic. Right. It's, that's it's, yes. That's the or, <laughs> that's ordinary magic. Mm. And for you, that's enough because that's all we can have. Yes. And then there's love. Right. That, that's the other thing. And occasionally there's sex, uh, without lo- with or without love. <laughs> Have you it. finally gotten that straight? It seems I, for a long time it was hard for you to get that straight, man. You know, have it now, you I think? I don't know that anybody gets it straight, ever. Right. When you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but no, it's nice that you even could say there's a distinction. That's yeah. good. Um, I'm happy to hear it. But uh, but if you could blink and, real ma- and magic could exist, yes. would you want it to? If no, God uh, could exist, no. would you blink him into existence no. or her? No. You wouldn't. No. Why? Because that's scary, man. <laughs> you know, then that's you, the pull quote. Then, then, you've, scary, got, then you've got, you know, genies. I don't want them. They're scary. The, you mean the, ca- the, the, uh, the capriciousness of them? Yes, and the fact that they're really powerful and that they don't, they're not susceptible to reason. You can't, you know, you can't talk them down. If they decide they want to you know, beat you up, they're So you, you like up. them in worlds where you can actually control them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, no, we're back exactly. to women. It's a love again. Yeah, just keep, you. keep yeah. it on the page. Keep that stuff on the page. <laughs> right. Uh, fascinating. Because... Yet you're draw- yet you're called to it, right? Because there are other ways you could express this stuff. Yet know, you're called to exploring it. No, no, I'm really aware of that contradiction, and I mean, I just have I can only make the Whitman response. You know, do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict yeah, myself. You have mul- you know? Yeah, you have and multitudes. That, yeah, exactly. I know that. I have occasionally written completely realist. So actually, when I wrote Shalimar the Clown, one of the things I thought is that the material there. I mean, I think it's the closest I've come to writing an actual tragedy. And I just thought the material there requires, the truth requires respect, and you have to tell it truthfully. So, I mean, that book does have, it has touches of of the fantastic, you know, like a a mullah made out of scrap iron. Um, Yeah, no, and I'm not, and no part of me is looking for that, that stuff for your work to be desaturated. I No part of me wants the the work not to have it in it, but because of the hyper-rational side of you and also your determination to look with a very clear eye at I mean Voltaire and Candide do appear in a couple of your books yes and obviously, you're not throwing those. Re- you know, I really hate when when people say, "And you know, scatter uh, scatters references." Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. They're not scattered. They're not fucking scattered. <laughs> this is yeah. Salman fucking Rushdie. They, they are. <laughs> no, there's that F again. They're advisedly. Uh, I mean, don't act shocked, man. Come on. They're, <laughs> no, 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 I'm just I've thinking. Of my, th- I'm thinking of the business card. Yes, the business card. You got to do it. So, but uh, you advisedly reference Candide, and uh, and and. I'm struck by the fact that the, the character stands in for um, people who put their head in the sand. Yeah. 
and and that you see that. I'm, I'm thinking about your fight with Penn, not Penn Jillette, Penn, the organization. You know, uh, My fight for them. Other people yes, fight against yes, them. Yes, but your yeah. fight for yeah. Penn yeah. in yeah. this situation when yeah. um, some people didn't want to uh, uh, give that award to Charlie Hebdo. Uh, yeah. But I'm, I'm thinking of that kind of person in the world being to you almost as evil as those who commit the... Well, I just think, you know, one of the things about being a writer uh, is that it's an enormous privilege. And, you know, as as Spider-Man would say, with that comes great responsibility. You know, you uh, and when these when the world is as it is and when these these issues arise, you know, you it's a test for all of us about which side we end up on. You know, and and to be on the wrong side, I think is it's really a pity, especially when you're a really good writer, you know, which many of the people who were on the wrong side are. Yeah, of that particular of that particular uh, business. Of course, know? yeah, they right, and it, yes, sh- it was shocking to me too, and felt so wrong. Yeah, because I would never have in a million years expected those writers to be taking that position. Yeah, it was shocking. Yeah, uh, but not shocking if you look at the people who, yes, many stood up for you, but the people who didn't, the people who canceled publishing. I mean, I would say I want people to buy this new book, two years, eight months, and twenty-eight days, because it's a marvel of nice. novel. It really is. Um, and yes, of course, 28 Nights. Um, it is, my handwriting is so shitty. It is yeah. um, a marvel of a book, but I do also think it should be read along with Joseph Anton. Well, it's the Which two is books your I memoir, think, because I, they are yeah. uh, two sides. Aren't it's very they? interesting. I think that's, I mean, it's interesting you say that because I think the two books have a, a relationship. I'm know? so glad to hear that. Yeah. Uh, and partly it's that in the one I was trying to be as truthful and factual and not fantastic and you know just here I am spilling the beans you know and and it was a lot of beans that were spilled over a long time and when I finished it I had a very powerful desire to do the opposite um, and and so that the the fact that, that the next book swings to the far corner of the literary spectrum, you know, and is as fabulous as Joseph Anton is not fabulous, you know, um, is partly because of Joseph Anton. It's partly because of having spent all those years in the world of realism. I thought, you know, there, there's another way to tell a story here. And let's go back, back and remember that. And and that took me back really to the source material of the things that had made me fall in love with stories in the first place, which are these crazy wonder tales. And so, yeah, I think that, and so this book is probably the most highly fabulous book I've written in a very long time, certainly adult book. Yes, but the djinn show up all over Joseph Anton. Yes. So, yeah. in other words, they... <laughs> yeah, but they're so, real ones. I know, yeah. but they're the real ones, both mm. good and evil. Uh, and these questions of falling in love, and I mean, that's why I laughed when you said the thing about <laughs> love and sex, because you read that book and you're like, well, this guy has no fucking idea that he can just have sex with someone without marrying them. I know, it's a mistake. And falling right? in love with them. Yeah. But the these sort of powers and trying to find a way to gain footing is so much of what Joseph Anton is about, mm-hmm. resourcefulness, yeah. figuring out what that means. How to how to reach across a great divide and stay connected mm-hmm. and touch those things that you love, mm-hmm. and that stuff exists here too. Those little slits in time. How could I not think of the little slits in time that you were able to spend with your son? Mm-hmm. Those little moments that the things can come through. It, they are to me um, connected at a deep level. Yeah. Well, I just yeah. But, but what I wanted. But the thing again, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about what's the use of fiction. One of the uses of fiction is that you can take stuff that starts off as your personal experience, and then you can go beyond that. You can go beyond that, and you can reach for something, you know, if, I mean, it sounds grand, but you can reach for something a little more universal, you know. So by making it fictional, you can say, yes, of course, this has something to do with my experience, because of course it comes out of my, like any book, comes out of a writer's experience. But yeah. it, but it's not, in the end, just that. It's also this broader thing or deeper thing, you know, which is why I thought, you know, given that there is this War of the Worlds in the book and it, it doesn't take rocket science to work out what that relates to, but I wanted to people to think, just let's since we don't call it by its real world name, 
in in the book. Maybe it's because we're looking at something just a little bit deeper than the news. You know, we're looking at a quarrel which is as old as human beings, the quarrel between reason and unreason, etc. We were saying that that quarrel is an eternal quarrel, and let's look at the nature of that. You know, and, and what's underneath it? What's underneath why. it? Yeah, and why? Yeah, and that's why you know my my two dead philosophers having their argument uh, were useful because I did. They, I really didn't think they were going to do that in the book. I mean, when I first thought of the book, I thought there would be this prologue in which Ibn Rush, the philosopher, has his love affair with the jinn princess, and they have all these children, and then and the children are fruitful and multiply and go forth into the world, you know, and so on. And then I thought, okay, then we're going to jump 850 years yeah. and arrive now, and the book will Did be Did you know you that. were going to tell it from a thousand years no, hence, that came too? later, too. Ah. That came, but, but certainly, I never thought that my, my philosopher character was going to be in anything except this little prologue. The prologue. And then once I started writing this argument between the two philosophers, you know, it was kind of, first of all, funny. And, and secondly, I thought it was useful as a way of, of unpacking the ideas of the book. And I thought, I, I can't let them go. I've got to find a way of keeping them. Are you writing these, are you writing for people steeped in this stuff? No. no. Uh, or, or can people bring to Nothing this to it. whatever they, they want to they bring do, to All they it. have to bring is a knowledge of the English language. And, and you'll do, you're happy to take them the through rest. it and do the rest. I'll do the rest. I think absolutely, I think that is an absolute rule of fiction, of of. of of writing, really, is that the writer does the work. You know, I have to give the reader everything the reader needs in order to appreciate it. Yeah, that's something I, I, I had wanted to say at the beginning of this, which is everybody knows who you are, but I, I think that part of what got lost in many and, things got lost for, for, for you and uh, about you during the, the, the time that you were on, on the run and yeah. hiding from um, evil. But... Uh, one of the things that I think got got lost is that people might not know, younger people in particular who actually need your books the most, mm. might not know that your books are fun. I know. It's, they it must really, drive you crazy that your no, no. books are a, a riot. I know. It's very – it was it, – and I think it's because – the way I explained it to myself is it because the thing that happened to me and to my work was not funny. The, somehow the characteristics of the attack were assumed to be the characteristics of the work. Yes. You know, so yes. Because, because, because the attack wasn't funny, the books couldn't be funny. You know, because the attack was theological and arcane and incomprehensible, the books must be theological and arcane well, and incomprehensible. Well, they must be. And because the books were important, they must be um, difficult. difficult, stuffy, and important with a yeah. capital I. Yeah. Yeah. And so everybody, uh, I think there are so many people who have purchased a book of yours mm. and actually not even read the first page. No, no, they buy it for some kind of status thing. But, or because to support, or because they think yeah. Yeah, they want to, but there's, you know. Um, yeah. But, you know, what happens is when people do start reading it, they're whichever book, their opinion changes quite fast. Instantly. I've been, I mean, I've been told by enough colleges now that, you know, when my books are on courses, they are the books that the kids doing the courses actually enjoy reading. And and when they're being told they also have to read, you know, Huckleberry Finn to Kill a Mockingbird, I mean, that's like everybody has to read. Those feel more like duties, you know, and, and this, they actually enjoy I mean, I mean, I've had, I can't tell you how many letters from people who read the satanic verses and who say, who knew that it was funny? Right. You know? All your books. I mean, they're Nobody all, ever mentions that. Yeah. There's uh, funny throughout all, all the books, yeah. but there's also, as a storyteller, you are, I think part of it is you're not writing polemics. No. You're, even if that's, if underneath it, there might be, is there, there are polemic there, ar arguments. There are ideas that I have my points of view, you know, and I think And you might have a character, you know, characters will state yeah. I mean, um, characters will state them, yeah. but you it does seem like you're interested in engaging the reader in this narrative. Yeah, I'm also story. interested in pleasure. Yeah. You know, I'm, 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 I'm interested in people having a good time reading the book, you know. And also, I myself, as a reader, have a very low boredom threshold. Right. You know, I'm really easily bored by a book. And so it's very important for me when doing the writing that I'm aware of the fact that other people could get bored too and to try not to bore them. To avoid self-indulgence. Yeah, just keep their interest, make stuff happen, you know. I mean, I don't know, I was reading some, some novel about, you know, suburban life in America. <laughs> I wasn't, didn't read that much of it. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if a spaceship landed on the lawn? <laughs> 
Right. You know, then, okay, then I'm interested. But when it's just suburban life in America, I'm not Rushdie says Franzen is shit. No, 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 I'm just kidding. No, I, 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 I don't go there. No, no, I mean, you <laughs> no, see, I think. That's not what he said. He's not even talking about that in no, any way, talking about no, it. No, no. I mean, actually, I, the thing I think about Jonathan is that he has, he has these really if you like 19th century virtues you know that, that he can he can make a really solid world which feels like reliable you know you can stand and jump up and yeah. down on it and it doesn't break yes and he will put what these well said thing he will you know, he will put these very believable solid people onto that solid world and there it is you know it's it's a uh, it, it's like the great realist work of the of 150 years ago. You know that that's his strength, I think, and it's it's not mine. I mean, you know, in the same way. No, I would imagine uh, though you feel more of a kinship with George Saunders. Oh yeah, I love George Saunders. Yeah, I do. Yeah, and also I envy him for having uh, uh, the thing that I feel regret is that I haven't written enough short fiction, and he's such a master of short fiction that it makes me want to sit down and write short stories. Yeah, I would imagine reading 10th of December must have been for you just yeah. in every way yeah, a, jo a yeah. joyous Joyful. experience, Joyful. right? Yeah. And I mean, I have, you know, at the moment got about four files with short stories on the go. And so, Publish them. I mean, I'm, they're not finished. There's like some is three pages, 20, 20 pages. So they're all in various stages of happening. But I'm really, I'm really pleased to be doing it because I think it's the thing I, I like doing and I haven't done nearly enough, I think. So especially now in the next few months when with, with you know, all this going on, but like a book tour stuff, I'm not really going to be able to, to work on any large sustained piece, you know, but, but I might in the gaps between things be able to work on short fiction. Uh, other than Saunders, like who else do you really enjoy oh, reading? I know there are many great writers, but who you really yeah. get, uh, oh, Milhouse. that's exciting. Milhauser. Oh, yeah, he's that's great. Just extraordinary. Well, you know, I I, I made um, I produced yes. a movie based on no, one of his. You did, of course. I mean, uh, and, and, I mean, it's a it's a terrific movie, and and everything he does is like that. Stephen you know? Mill, it's true. Yeah. I remember reading Eisenheim, The Illusionist, in yes. 1989, yes. and carrying it around for 13 years until yeah. we like because that story yeah. had underneath yes. it absolute. And even the you know the novel of Martin Martin Dressler, oh, you know, I mean, this that hotel with the. You know, with the lawn yeah. <laughs> on the whole floor and things like that. I mean, I think he... It's surprising he's not more well-known. He known. deserves to be a superstar. I was thinking yeah. about William Kennedy this morning. Yes, I William I, Kennedy. Oh, I don't understand why William Kennedy isn't a household yeah, name. Yeah, Well, I mean, I, yeah, especially... I mean, he's even had the benefit of having not bad movies made from his... I mean, Ironweed, not so bad. Yeah, not, yeah. Uh, but uh, but you, you wonder why somehow that hasn't... I mean, yeah. for me, when I think about yeah. it, because... You know, I talk about a clear-eyed realist who writes magical yes. yeah. realism in the best way. I, yeah. I mean, no, no, I think, and and then you know James Salter. You know, I mean, the, these are these are the, the sort of the secret writers. You know, that, that every writer knows about them. It makes me so happy to hear you say it. Yeah. I was talking about Salter yeah, and Kennedy yeah. this morning with somebody. As yeah. like, I don't, you know, I think it's mm. weird. Salter at the end there did get a, a little bit. They began, but every there were all these articles written about him. But all the articles said nobody knows who he is. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, uh, well, so you though, how how I was I was thinking about this. Um, Yes, you can't. Bombay is gone, right? And you say none of us can. I mean, we I want still to go, go back. You know, I still have a. I'm still very drawn to it. You know, and I still have a lot of friends there. And in fact, I'm very interested because I'm interested in cities and what happens to them. You know, and I'm really interested in the precisely in the metamorphosis of Bombay. You know, from it's now much huger than it ever was. It's probably ten times the size that it was when I grew up there. And there are parts of it that I think, you know, this used to be a village. It used yeah. to be open countryside. You know, when, when in my childhood, when we went to the beach, I, I lived in the, you know, in the, the bit of Bombay that looks like Manhattan, which is this peninsula sticking out into the water. It's actually roughly Manhattan-sized and shaped. Yeah. But the beach was up north of that on the mainland, a place called Juhu, and it's beautiful beach, which when in my childhood, you would get in the car and you would drive and you would go into open countryside and you would be in rural India, you know, and then you would turn left down a sort of lane and you would arrive at this beach, which was endless. It just went like this perfect, pure beach. And there wasn't a single building on it, not one building. There was just sand and sea and trees, coconut palms and things. And that's where I spent my childhood. And now 
Juhu is completely swallowed by the city. There's no open countryside. All the way around the beach, there are there are big buildings, you know, and it's now kind of like Bondi, you know, it's now a beach in a city. Yeah, completely transformed. What does that feel like to you? It, it feels shocking, but and what's happened is that as the city has moved, the center of the city has moved north. So because it's a, it's a city so dominated by the film industry, now should movie stars live in Juhu, things like that. So it's now become cool. Whereas it used to just be this wonderful beach in the countryside. And so I understand the appreciation for it, but also, as I said, the sense of alienation that yeah. appears in all of your work. I just think its stories are no longer my stories to tell. You know? Is there a sadness attached yeah, to that? Yeah, there is. There is. There is, because it's my city, you know? I mean, in a literary sense, it's it's uh, it's my city. And as someone who's so aware of the, the of momentum mm. that you can't go, you actually can't go even a second backwards mm -hmm. of entropy, as I know you're keenly aware, of alienation, uh, you know, starting when you left and went to you know, boarding school and all that stuff. When you found yourself in Madison Square Garden and you two dedicates one to you, Whoa. <laughs> and Madison Square Garden is singing along and singing to you, hmm. are you able to allow yourself... To really take in the sense of belonging? Yes, actually. Yes, it was, it was an extraordinary moment. I mean, yeah, because I, I mean, I was thinking about moments because of this. And he didn't warn me, you know. <laughs> he, Bono didn't warn no, you. No, he didn't warn me that he was going to do it. So, what is that? So, you're sitting there. Uh, Can you walk, walk me through it? Like, what does that feel like? You're sitting well, at the show. Ah, you know, you sort of jerk backwards and you think, you don't expect to, you know, hear your name come out of the stage area in Madison Square Garden when U2 is playing, you know, um, and then suddenly, you know, where are you? Are you over there? You know, and, and then afterwards he's texting me to say, were you still there? Did you hear it? I dedicated a song to you. Right. And of course I was there. Well, no, obviously you guys are close friends <laughs> yeah. and you've written about yeah. him and I, I understand yeah. that. But when no, no, the, it was, it was incredible. And then all the people around you. That's what I'm saying. You, when the people yeah. around you, yeah. because for somebody who feels like an outsider all the time, yeah. you are also a real insider. But I feel less like an outsider in New York City That's what I, than anywhere else I've ever lived. That's, why? why? I, I think partly it is that everybody's an outsider. You know, I mean, this is a city of people who come from other places. And perhaps as a result of that, it's a city which very easily lets you in. You know, I mean, you, know, you, you arrive in New York, you put your bags down, and you say, okay, I'm a New Yorker now. And you are. You don't have to earn anything. You're just, you're, you, you're here, and, you, and like, you're here like everyone else. I found it to be an easy, very easy place to enter. You know, and I'm not even talking about now. I'm talking about when I was 25 years old and came here for the first time. You know, it was a city that just lets you yes. in. Yes. And so sitting there in, in the garden or standing yeah. there in the garden yeah. with everybody singing that to yeah. you. I thought it was a moment. A real moment of, yeah. of like uh, yeah. of a deep, I imagine, kind of, because you have the magic of this song, the lyric yeah. of that song, mm. and the garden singing. Yeah. I, yeah it it must have felt like a kind of... Uh, homecoming was, of it sorts. Was, no, it was very sweet. It was very sweet and a little embarrassing. <laughs> Great. Well, very sweet and a little embarrassing feels like a perfect uh, <laughs> note on which to uh, wrap this up. I have to say thank you for writing this book. Uh, oh, I guess the, the one thing I did want to actually specifically ask before we stop is what do you feel are, and this is a downer note to end on, I'm sorry, uh, but I do have you here, so I have to ask the question yeah. because um. I was so um, uh, deeply sh shaken up by the the Times article a few weeks back about ISIS and their ritual rape huh. uh, of young uh, women with uh, and you know not just like armies rape armies rape and plunder uh, hell that's part of why people join you know that's 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 uh, part of what they sign up for but using religious justification for it makes it uh, you know this uh, systematic Nazi like evil and how are we supposed to function? Uh, and go through our days and not be candied and mm. not just put our heads in the sand and, and thank Providence for our good fortune. Yeah, and know, what is our a... obligation and how do we, how do we, how are we supposed to conduct ourselves? Like, how are we supposed to reconcile that with the lives we live? Yeah. Well, first of all, we can be grateful for them. You know, we can be really grateful that we live in the lucky bit of the world. You know, um, most people live in the unlucky bit of the world. And then we have to not put our heads in the sand. We have to look it in the eye. 
You know, I think, uh, I mean, you know, neither you nor I are soldiers. You know, we're not gonna we're not gonna pick up guns and go to war. Who would want us? <laughs> um, yeah, I would be dead uh, on uh, upon, uh, dead upon landing. Exactly. The second I got, I'd be one of those guys. Yes, yes, private private. I mean, literally the second I hit the, exactly. the beach. Yeah, but you know, so what we could do, and I think it's what artists could do, is to name the thing, name the monster. You know, and say, this is what's happening. Don't pretend it's not happening, and don't pretend it's not what it is. You, you mean know? to say it's it's radical Islam? Yeah. So yeah, just to say here is what it is. This is why it's happening. This is where it comes from. This is who's paying for it, um, and at least let's talk about the right thing. You know, and I think there's a there's. You I mean not talk around it, not use euphemistic not talk, language. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Look it straight in the face. You know, and say there is something that's happened at the heart of the Islam project, which is monstrous, monstrous, and has and is expanding very, very fast. And now it has an army. Of course, it doesn't mean that you know most Muslims you know are, are somehow tarred with that brush. You know, of course, it doesn't mean they're that. not. Of course, yeah. I mean, it's like saying most people living under the rule of the Soviet Union were probably quite decent people. But it didn't mean that the Soviet Union wasn't monstrous. It was. And I remember in those days, a lot of non-Soviet leftist intellectuals would try to excuse Marxism you know, by saying, you know, Marxism is a religion of liberation and freedom, uh, or not a religion, but an ideology of religion and freedom, and, you know, and it seeks to, to improve the condition of the masses of the people and so on. And, you know, it's a good thing. But that thing over there, which was which began to be called actually existing socialism. Well, they would call it Soviet Marxism. Yeah. That's not it, right? right. So that's not Marxism because Marxism, you know, is a religion of and peace. And you're saying that's useless. I'm saying that's useless. And, and, and what happened is when the wall fell and the Soviet and all these Soviet intellectuals suddenly were able to come out and talk, they said, what the hell are you talking about? That was what Marxism became. And you can't separate the true faith from what it became. And I think we're having a similar conversation here about Islam. And you're right about the language because uh, when you think about – I understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, Anytime the language approaches uh, Orwellian language Mm. where you're not – where you're trying to do verbal gymnastics to avoid saying um, ISIS is – a radical Islamic group yeah. who are using what they claimed the t- to be the tenets of yes. Islam. Yeah. You, that you have to say it. It's like the way these uh, people are uh, twisting around the words religious freedom for yes. that cleric who won't marry those yes. people when, of course, it has nothing to do with religious freedom. No, and that's propaganda. It, no, it's to do with bigotry. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah. Uh, and, but they're, they're, they employ, they de- deploy... Yes. Yes. The tricky language. So they do. And, and you're saying, and it feels like in uh, your work and... I'm just saying if we're in the language business, yes, we have to unscramble that. We have to say this is a misuse of language. It doesn't, this isn't, as you say, not about religious freedom. It's about bigotry. This country has religious freedom. You know, it's in the First Amendment. Yeah, she has every right to believe and act upon yes. her beliefs, except in the furtherance of the whole point of the religious freedom is that the government doesn't use religion to make yeah. its decisions. Exactly. Which is what they were trying to do here. Yeah. And so you think if we call it out, if we name it, That's that, what, our, that, that, that then, um, then, then, the we argument, can, then we can go to Madison Square Garden and enjoy that yes. too? And also, yes, of course. We, we, I mean, I think the, 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 the point I, about yeah. fascism in this case, religious fascism, is that one of the things it most hates is pleasure. That's to say, you know, what did the Taliban ban? They banned movie theaters. They banned music. They they banned acting. Uh, they banned almost every book. Hugging of, and kissing hugging in public. Hugging and kissing, you know. Exactly. So they were banning pleasure. The war is against pleasure. You know, I mean, there's that wonderful, I, I now forget which American humorist said it, but I'll try to remember, who, who said that, uh, you may know this, but that Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be, be having happy. A good, yeah, might be, be happy. happy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, Jason will put in the notes who said it. I don't want to miscredit yeah. uh, who it is. But uh, yeah, I can't remember it. I, right. I blanked. But and so, anyway, the point is, Puritanism is always anti-pleasure. And so, you know, we need to fight it by having a pleasurable, by building and preserving and maintaining a world in which 
boys and girls can hold hands, in which you can listen to music, in which you could go to movies, in, wh- in which you could do the things that make life rich. And engaging in those things yeah. a- actually defies yeah. and uh, is an act against yeah. terror. Yeah. Short skirts. Wow. When people wonder how Rushdie gets all the girls, <laughs> he just answered it. I mean, that rap must be amazing in a bar. That the very act of pleasure oh, is, uh, is... Yes, it's absolutely revolutionary. It's revolutionary. It's revolutionary. Exactly. Well, the revolutionary Salman Rushdie, yeah. thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> Everyone should read your book and all your books, and uh, I hope I see you soon. Uh, if you want to find Salman, he is on social media and will respond to you. Uh, if you tweet at him um, cleverly enough uh, he, you're at Salman Rushdie yeah. uh, and has a check mark next to him uh, he's on there you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter if you want to email me uh, but no invective please about any of this stuff uh, at the moment bk at gmail.com don't send me screenplays or books or screeds thank you uh, thanks for listening Salman I'll see you soon thanks yeah, thank you thanks Brian